before we begin, I would appreciate it if we could please start with a prayer. So let's bow our heads and our hearts. Our loving Heavenly Father, it is truly a blessing for us to come before Thee today, to lay down our barriers towards one another and towards Thee, and to discuss with honesty the, the trials that we face on a day-to-day -day basis and the, and the threats that we face both to our own salvation and our very souls. Help us, Lord, to be able to speak with one another in a way that would edify us and give thee honor and glory, and speak through this broken and empty vessel that I might be able to be used of thee. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, the, uh, the topic of the forum, if you haven't checked your books, is Peculiar Christians uh, in Plain Sight. Uh, and it's really all about how we as Christians should be trying to live our faith honestly and with, without compromise and what that truly means. And if we are going to truly do that, we have to be able to know what kinds of threats we're, we're being faced with, uh, specific threats. Uh, this is not a time or a place where ambiguity is something that is going to help us to be able to walk better. So uh, what I'm going to be focusing on specifically today with you guys is how we as young people and young Christians are going to be faced with pressures from, from our culture and our social interactions because uh, we are at the, times of our, at the time in our life when these are sort of the most important parts of our lives, not having spouses or families. And I just want to start off, um, how many of you here are, are baptized Christians in the faith? Okay, uh, how many of you here would like to be baptized Christians in the faith? All right, if you're not sure, that's okay too. Hopefully you'll all be able to get something out of this today. But if we're going to discuss what it means to be a peculiar person and how we can be a peculiar person, we first have to define it. We have to understand what exactly that means. And so uh, contemporary society would say things like, you know, a person who's weird, a person who's strange or eccentric or bizarre, um, it, uh, something that's peculiar, something that's you know, belongs to only one kind of person or one group of people. But if we're going to go with a biblical definition, we can pull that straight from God's word. First Peter says we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Consider these to be synonyms with God's idea of a peculiar person, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And here is the specific of that peculiarity, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And more, more than that, more than just showing God's glory to the world around us, we are beseeched by Paul and by God, by the mercies of God, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service, that we would not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is made possible by the Holy Spirit, so that we can prove what is good and acceptable and that perfect will of God. That's what it truly means to be a peculiar person in today's society when we're serving the Lord. So why us? Why is it important that we be the peculiar people? Why is it, why is it so important that we be willing and able to stand out in society and be noticed? It's because we are God's witnesses. We are his ambassadors to the people around us so that they can understand that he not only exists, but that 
he has chosen us, and by him, nothing else exists. That the things that, that God created and the things that God said are real. And Luke says, you know, no man, when he lights a candle, puts it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. Our lights are supposed to shine so that men can see the truth of God, both in themselves and in us. Collectively, as a Christian body, as the body of Christ, we are supposed to be the city on a hill that shines brightly so that everyone can see it. But if we, knowing what God's plans are for us, we have to understand what Satan's plans are. Because if God has plans for us, so does the devil. We know that he wants to draw us away from God. If we are uh, gaining our source of spiritual light from God, he needs to cut that source off. And so one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to try to draw us away from him. He's going to thwart God's purpose for our lives. We know that, that, that on, a, on a grander scheme, God's purpose for our life is to have us share the gospel and, and draw all men to him if we lift Christ up. But there are specific um, individual purposes for our lives that God has. You know, uh, I, I've, I'm, I'm one who has felt called to become a school counselor, and so that's what I feel God's specific purpose for my life is. But that may not be what, you know, your, your purpose is um, or yours. Someone may be called to a different kind of thing. Someone may be called to mission fields. And if Satan can thwart that purpose in our lives, that's an area where he wins. The other thing he wants to do is he wants to rob God of his due glory and honor. You think about the temptation of Christ where uh, he stood on the top of the mountain and he said, see all these kingdoms? All these will I give you if you will bow down and worship me. He wants to steal God's glory from him. And if possible, at his very best, at the very greatest victory that he can have, he wants to destroy us. uh, First Peter says, you know, the, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. So, how is he going to accomplish this? Well, first off, he's going to try to push us into a kind of Christian stereotype. The, and uh, just These are sort of the three major categories that I came up with. The first is the brassy Christian, the Bible thumper who stands on the street corner and tells everyone they're going to hell. That was actually me in third grade. I stood on the playground because they were picking on someone, and I told them they were all going to hell. Um, <laughs> truth, truth. I'm, it's, I, can't, I can't be ashamed of that. I did it. I was eight, and I didn't know better. I knew the truth, but I didn't know the love of God. And in Corinthians, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am but a tinkling cymbal and a sounding brass. The next is the wallflower, as I call it. These are the, these are the introverts who keep their head down. Uh, they don't really stand out. They don't really conform to anything. They're, they're, they're good kids. They're good Christians. But... Um, you know, they, don't, they never say anything controversial. They sort of blend into the background. You know, don't any, anyone bother me. Um, no one really knows much about them except that they're the kid that everyone's sort of okay with. No one has a problem with them. When I thought about this kind of person, I actually thought about Lot in the Old Testament. Lot was a man who lived in one of the worst cities, or, well, in, in one of the worst cities in all of history, actually. Um, so much so that God had to send down fire and brimstone to destroy it. And yet Lot was righteous enough that God spared him and saved him from the destruction. It won't do for us to be spared the ultimate fire and destruction of hell if all the rest of the world goes without us. The last, and and the wallflower was actually me in middle school and high school. Not because I became a Christian when I was in high school. 
and I learned a little bit more about the love of God, but I didn't have the boldness either anymore, so I was the wallflower. And then we have the chameleon. And um, the, 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 first, the first part of a phrase that I have that I love, that I, that I heard from a brother in Mansfield, was with a brassy Christian, truth without love is harsh. But with the chameleon, the second half of that phrase comes into play when it says, and love without truth is compromise then you should all know what this is. The, the chameleon is, is the people who are a bit more extroverted. They want to fit in. They want to adapt, go with the flow. They, they, they do what they need to do in order to gain acceptance. And, and it's okay for them because not only is it easy, but it's fun because everybody likes you. You're the popular person. You have to know what kind of a stereotype the devil is trying to push you into. What kind of a Christian is the devil trying to mold you into? Because he is trying to mold you. Just as much as God and Christ with his spirit is trying to mold us into the image of Christ, Satan is trying to mold us into a parody of a Christian. There's a certain amount of power in understanding what your weaknesses and your tendencies are when you're with other people. And even when you're away from other people. And Satan knows that, so he tries to keep us blind to the kind of person that we tend to be, either through distraction or through denial, because it hurts to look inwardly, because you don't always like what you see. But we can reach this, this introspection, and we can overcome these obstacles if we pray that prayer of David that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. And he will reveal it to us. Um, the, you know, who am I to stand up here and tell any of you this? Um, I have to tell you a little bit of my own story to let you know that not only am I aware of all this, I've lived it. Uh, this is from a book that I, uh, I read recently. It's a contemporary version of the Screwtape Letters. And the, the demon who writes to his, his apprentice nephew says, Our patient needs the companionship of friends. He feels that not many people are close to him. Our patient is obviously very lonely indeed. He certainly does not have the fellowship of close Christians, prayer partners, or people he is accounted to. See to it that this dependency will never develop. Could have been describing me there. Um, the second part, I never found Christians boring, um, and I never really felt uh, restricted by God or anything like that, but it may apply to you. Um, you all know who I am. Uh, I'm from Coconut Creek, and six years ago, my family moved to Florida from Richmond. Um, I was very excited to go. I, I, was, I was actually the one who told my dad, yep, we got to go. Um, dad was still on the prayer stage, and I was... I was 18 years old and just totally on fire for God. And so I said, we have to go to Florida, and we have to help out this church. Turns out it was God's will. So, you know, a uh, point for, for getting it right on that count. But we got down to Florida, and I hadn't counted the cost of what it truly meant to go down to serve in a small church where you have 20 people uh, on an average Sunday and you are literally the youngest person in church. Um, the average age of the congregation when we moved down there was, I think, 60. I could be wrong. Higher, Julie says. Probably closer to 80. Brother Werner Limegruber was about 90 when we moved down there. And Ty Reyes, who was the youngest member, was, I think, 52. Um, so we moved down to Florida, and I was totally miserable. I mean utterly and completely miserable. I didn't realize how dependent I was on my spiritual peers and on my cousins and on my friends. I didn't realize how much strength I drew from their company. And I hated the fact that I lived in Florida. I, 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 I tried to transfer to Ashland University in, Mans, in, in Mansfield, 
Um, Half-heartedly, I didn't actually submit the application, but it was filled out. And I talked to my, I told my dad about it, and we we talked that out. Um, and and I just I just became so bitter that God would send me and my sisters because if you think this was only easy on me, it wasn't. They reacted to all this in different ways, perhaps a bit more um, gracefully than I did. But over time, I came to accept the fact that I was living in Florida and I was in it for the long haul, at least for a little while, because I was in college. And, you know, as someone who is, tends to be a social person, I'm a bit introverted, but I, I am a very social person, I made friends. I didn't make a lot of friends because I'm a bit introverted, but I made about five or six friends, and we became very, very, very close. Um, they became my youth group. They became my counselors. They became the people I went to when I had a hard day or I was frustrated with my family over something. But the problem is I didn't fit in. I was different. I was peculiar. And I was able to get along with them pretty well because they were moral people. There were a couple Catholics, a Baptist, and a person who's not religious but quote-unquote spiritual. So we got along pretty well because we were, we were all moral people. But I felt the difference between me and them, and I didn't like it. Because I longed for the intimacy of a close friendship. And so I had a choice to make, and I made it. I decided that I would start to compromise a little bit here and there. I started listening to quote-unquote worldly music, started off in the uh, 60s because they, they, had, they, they could you know, help get me up to contemporary music eventually. Um, but I started off with like Journey and stuff like that. Um, started watching television shows that I neither liked nor felt was acceptable for a young Christian man to watch. But because that was what they watched, I felt I need to know what's going on so that I can partake in these conversations and, and feel like I fit in. And I, and wouldn't you believe it, I started to fit in. Um, it spiraled. It spiraled a lot. It spiraled so much so that they actually had a chant that they would say. They would say, downward spiral, downward spiral. It was the downward spiral of Rob. You laugh. I learned to laugh at it, too. At first, when they, when they said it the first time, I was angry because I didn't want to accept the fact that I was losing something. And over time, I became okay with it and laughed it off because I was still a Christian. I was still, I was still God's child. I was still doing Bible studies every week in church, literally every week in church because there was no one else to do it. I was still doing everything my parents asked of me and more. I was doing everything the church asked of me and more. But I was leading a complete double life. I was a fractured person. Which is not to say that I did not mean the things that I ever said or did while I was in church. I just didn't mean it when I was out of church. And so every day, every time I would get done with my friends, and, and, and I mean, you think, you think it's just something as simple as watching Family Guy or The Simpsons and listening to, to Journey or Rent or something like that? No, this was me engaging in conversations that were full of lewdness, making jokes that, that no one should ever hear, talking about things that, that should never be spoken of, all for the sake of fitting in. And you know what? I still didn't fit in. Because there was still a Holy Spirit residing inside of me. 
And there were boundaries to what I could and couldn't do. There were places where even I wouldn't go even within that. The big thing was movies. I, I, wouldn't, I would not go to see a movie with my friends because I knew that if my parents found out about it, everything would come crashing down. And I, and I didn't want to cross certain lines. But it got to a point where I started to ask myself, why are you still in your church? Why are you still doing this? You're living a lie. Make a choice. Either stay in your church and do what you're supposed to do there, or leave it. And there was, there was one time when I, when I was getting ready to go into graduate school, I was going to move out with my friends. I was going to get an apartment with them. And I honestly believe if I had done that, he wouldn't be seeing me standing here today. I was ready to walk away from my faith because I was lonely, because God wasn't enough for me. That's the first part of this story. You're going to hear the second part in a minute. What does Satan stand to lose in all of this? Why would he attack us in this way? The first thing he stands to lose is us. The Bible says, who shall separate us from the love of God? No one and nothing. But I always feel like there's a caveat there. We can separate ourselves from the love of God. And so that's what Satan stands to lose. And so he's going to do everything he can. The other thing is he stands to lose a cosmic war with God that's been going on since before the foundations of time. He stands to lose his kingdom. The Bible calls him the God of this age and the prince of this world. And so he is fighting for his own territory. And lastly, he's fighting for his own life. Because when it's all said and done and Christ finally comes again, he is going to be thrown into that lake of fire and be tormented forever. If you, had, if you stood with that much to lose, wouldn't you fight like he did too? In terms of society and in terms of culture, he has very specific things, specific weapons that he uses against us to try to make us fall. And I tried to break them up as broadly as possible and all-encompassingly as possible, and I came up with these. First, he, he uses relationships. He uses attitudes. He uses entertainment. He uses dress or appearance. And lastly, he uses our speech. And I'm going to try to break these down and talk about them all a little bit. Hopefully, I won't go over time. Um, first is relationships. You all probably remember this. You know, this is camp, teen choir. I, I, some of the best times I've ever had at camp are in the choirs. I love to sing, and I love singing in choirs. That's one of the things I really missed about moving to Florida, actually. But there, there's, I always felt such a purity of what we were doing whenever we were singing in the choirs. And this is what society tells us. It tells us fractured households where, where the, our younger siblings are fighting. We're off in our own little world somewhere because we don't want to have to listen to it all. Our parents are bickering and they're not together. We're off with uh, some significant other who um, can give us some physical pleasure. We're not getting along with our parents um, or our siblings. And our friends are there for us through it all. Society tells us that our parents are ignorant and over-controlling and stupid. You watch, uh, I've seen the shows. Homer Simpson is an idiot. That's what makes it funny, right? It's a farce. But what society tells us is that our parents are not as smart as their children. And so because of that, we've got to escape them. We've got to escape their influence because we know so much better than them. 
Our siblings. Why would we want to spend time with our siblings? They're just annoying. They're obnoxious. We constantly argue. We never get along. We never have anything in common. And to a certain extent, I understand that that's true. I, I, I am one of... I'm very blessed and that my sisters and I always got along relatively well once we became Christians. Before then, things got a little scrappy from time to time. But we were always a fairly close family, and I'm thankful for that. But generally speaking, what siblings really get along all the time? Our peers, as teens, boy-girl relationships become terribly important. If you're a boy and you don't have a girlfriend, something's wrong. You're either a eunuch or you're gay. Am I wrong? No. All throughout high school, I was the kid who everyone thought was gay, but couldn't really prove it. It's true. Girls, you better get a man, or something's wrong. Either you're ugly, you're fat, or you're, I don't know, you're lacking whatever quality there is that needs you to get a man. Maybe you're a lesbian. Am I wrong? Friends become the central support system for a teenager and a young adult. And more than that, they become the moderators of all other aspects of culture and society that influence us. We are most shaped by what shapes our friends. What does the Bible say about this? The Bible says that as children, we are supposed to honor and obey our parents in the Lord. For this is right. It's the first commandment that God gave us with a promise. If we are employees, as most of you probably are because you're older teens, we're supposed to honor our employers. We're not supposed to try to cheat them out of their time by goofing off or checking in when we're, you know, punching in when we're not there. We're supposed to serve them as, as if we were doing it unto the Lord. And seeing that we've purified our souls in the truth through the Spirit, and to unfeigned love to the brethren, we need to be loving each other. And I can honestly tell you that if you are not getting along with your family who are Christians, something is probably wrong. It's a good indicator. Gauge how well you get along with your parents and your siblings if they're Christians. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is the key one. No man can serve two masters, for they will either love the one and cleave to the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon because the most important thing for us to do is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you know what? Everything else falls into, a, into place. Next we have our attitudes. In the home, in school, uh, with our friends, whatever. And girls, forgive me if I got some of these wrong. Um, I did consult my sister, but I, I'm a guy. I don't always get this stuff quite right. But I have to, t- I have to look good and I have to take care of myself you got to get that man. Um, in terms of what I've observed in society, uh, in college, and otherwise, the trends in terms of attitude follow in being coy, in being flirtatious, or just outright silly, because the silly girls are the fun ones. Gossip is huge for a young lady, as is celebrity gossip or fashion, because that goes along with looking good, as well as shunning the girls who don't make the cut. Guys, we got to be tough. We got we to gotta be macho. We have to be strong. Major goal of a teenage boy today, or young man, excuse me, I'm, I would never call any of you guys boys, but it's to show our sexual prowess. That's what locker room talk is all about. 
How many girlfriends have we had? How many have we went, run through? How many have we gotten to go out on dates of us? How successful have we been? And you fill in whatever you want into those air quotes. Our focus is on sports, on athletic ability. We reject the weird or unpopular kids because that would tarnish our reputation. We crack jokes. We're the wise guys who everybody likes because we're able to look at everything with such a comical disdain. That's the attitude that a guy is supposed to have. Because I tried to adopt that when I was in college. Not the um, sexual prowess stuff. Like I said, I had limitations. I, I, no, seriously, I'm thankful. I never went on a date in all of this. Which is not to say I couldn't have. Because there, there were opportunities. But God put barriers there that even I couldn't cross. And I'm so thankful for that. There's a very with us or against us attitude in our culture today. It's a great way of controlling people because if you're against us, your life is miserable, so you better get with the picture. The Bible says that as young men, we are exhorted to be sober-minded. In all things, showing ourselves a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of us. Which is not to say that we should never have a good time, we shouldn't enjoy ourselves. But there should be a maturity to the way we live our lives that rises above the silliness and the nonsense that would drive us to sin. No one is supposed to despise our youth because we are being an example of the believers both in word in conversation, in our love, in our spirit, our faith, and our purity. We're not supposed to love the world or the things of the world because if we do, the love of God really isn't in us. Our moderation is supposed to be known unto all men. There should never come a time in your life when someone says, oh, you're a Christian? That's one of the greatest failures we could ever make. See if you can recognize some of this, I'm sure. Justin Bieber. The most famously infamous 16-year-old infamous today. Entertainment. The epitome of secularism in one of the most powerful vehicles of contemporary teenage relationships. What do you do when you get together? You talk about what movie you saw, or you go to see a movie, or you share a, uh, an album that, you, uh, that, that, that just came out, or you talk about this person or that person, or what's going on on that show, and will Bella ever really get with Edward? <laughs> I'm not going there. The majority of television celebrates lust, violence, Rebellion and ungodliness, the entertainment that is in the world today is the epitome of secularism because it has studied the nature and tendencies of man so that it might be able to capitalize on it. And so it caters to the flesh of man so that it can profit. And in order to be mainstream, in order to fit in, even as, even as you know, fairly faithful Christians today, we play this really dangerous tug-of-war game with exactly how much sin 
is okay in our entertainment? How much do we push the boundaries on the music we're listening to? Or how much, how much sex and violence and blasphemy is okay in the television that we watch? Do we go to PG, PG-13? Is it okay if we watch an R-rated movie if there's no sex in it, but there's just violence? How far can we push this envelope and still maintain our Christian integrity? I have a really, really sad thing to... And this is actually recently, it was a wake-up call for me, um, another one. Uh, I was talking with a a friend of mine who is a a member in the church about a book that that they were reading that I lent them. And um, it had been turned into a movie, and we had both seen the movie, and I had read the book, and now he was reading the book. And there was a, a scene in the book that was intimate. Uh, It was delicately intimate, but it was intimate nonetheless. And he said, I don't remember that being in the movie. I said, oh yeah, it was in the movie, but it was tastefully handled, so it's okay. And I was IMing at the time, and um, as soon as I hit the send button, I looked at what I said, and I said, I can't believe I just said that. I just said that sex is fine so long as it's tasteful. The internet, social networking, YouTube, entertainment websites, and pornography. It's all out there. And, question, is there anyone here who's not on Facebook? Wow, more than I thought. That's amazing. I'm not saying that Facebook is a a horrible thing, but it is a powerful tool of the devil to get us ingrained in the culture of our peers and to distract from more important things. Constantly checking those Facebook updates and photos from the party on the weekend. Drugs and alcohol, I pray none of us ever have to get into that or ever have to struggle with that. It's promoted by society, society to be the epitome and ultimate form of recreation and relaxation. But it's a snare. It's an outright snare and a trap. Ephesians says, But fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Not once as become as saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For, ye, for this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye therefore not partakers with them. Because it's a shame to even speak about those things that are done in secret. This is where I started to go. For even as they did not like to retain God in their hearts, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, Covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable and unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit, which commit such things are worthy of death, not only to do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We take pleasure in the films that celebrate lust and violence and ungodliness. The Bible says these things should not be. And even, even getting ready for this forum, I had to look at my collection of media and say, is any of this really acceptable? 
Should I, I mean, I mean, have I crossed the line? Appearances. Aren't they cute? What does society tell us about appearance? They look nice, no? Satan's pressures for us when it comes to appearance are on sexual desirability. Gentlemen, you can tell me that you hit the gym four or five or six days a week so that you can be healthy. Don't pull that with me. And don't even try to talk to God about that. Because if we're truly focusing on our bodies so much, we're not focusing it on it for health. We're focusing on it so that we can be desirable to the opposite sex. When it comes to clothing, the focus is on branding and flashiness. In psychology, we actually call it the peacock effect. The flashier the bird, the better. So therefore, the better it is to attract the mate. These things distract from the heart and the mind so as to draw men and women as women's attention in a sexual way. You're not only compromising yourself, but we are compromising the spiritual integrity of those around us by causing them to lust after us. Because the world tells us that that's a good thing. These things serve to flatter the appearance, promote vanity, vanity and shallowness of character. Proverbs says that favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. You know, God told Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance as men look at the outward appearance because God looks at the heart. And gentlemen, if you think that uh, women were the only ones targeted by that, beauty is vain and deceitful and whatnot, but bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Our speech. I doubt, no, okay, no one ever says verbally, LOL. I mean, there are some, but, but I'm sure it's been typed. Um, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna focus on this too much. We got more important things to talk about. In our speech, in our conversation, and in the conversation of society today, sarcasm is the humor du jour. The funniest guy that you know is the one who insults people and makes them laugh about it. Disrespect and lack of love towards our neighbors is glorified in our conversation, whether it's to make fun of each other, make fun of other people, whatever. We make fun of the outcasts and we gossip about them. We make dirty jokes and comments about sexual things that that should not even be once mentioned among us as saints. We use common phrases that are not in line with the Christian mindset, such as cursing and taking God's name in vain. It becomes very easy to say things like WTF when you're not actually saying the F word, but the meaning is still there. If any man among you seem to be religious, religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. We can be walking the talk as well as we think we are, but our tongue can be our greatest downfall. James de devoted an entire chapter to it, where he calls it, uh, uh, he, he calls it, a, uh, it is set on fire of hell. Uh, the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Ephesians also says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, 
which is good to, to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hear, hearers. By the things that we say and the conversations we have, we should be building people up and not tearing them down. We're not supposed to swear at all. I mean, we, we're all familiar with this verse because we, as a particular denomination, do not take oaths. How does all this work? How do we get on such a slippery slope? How did I, who was born in the year 2001 and as of this year will have been a Christian for nine years, wind up at a place where I was starting to question whether or not I should leave the faith? It wasn't my parents' fault. I will never lay the blame on them. It wasn't God's fault either. It was all mine. But there's a psychology to it. There's a mechanism that comes into play with this. God designed us to need other people. We are social beings, social creatures. We need the company of other people. And that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. That's why we have the body of Christ. But Satan knows that. And so he capitalizes on it and twists it so that he can draw us towards certain people and not others. Also, as social beings, we have a need to be loved and accepted. And so Satan capitalizes on that too. This slippery slope that we go on, is, there's, there's actually a phrase for it because it's been studied. It's called cognitive dissonance. If you want to change a person's attitudes, you change their behavior first, and the attitudes follow. Because what happens is, if you do something that goes against who you consider your identity to be, for instance, a Christian, if I do something that's, that's counter to what I consider being a Christian to be, there's this uncomfortable uh, emotional tension that occurs. And that has to be resolved because you can't deal with tension forever. So you can't change what you've already done. So your mind changes itself to be able to at least accept, if not approve, of what's been done. Over time, a person's attitudes and behaviors can change so much that they're doing all kinds of things that they would never do, and they're okay with it. That's how the devil works. Rest of my story, and I'm going to make it kind of quick because we only have 15, no, 17 minutes left. Where we left off, I was starting to wonder if there was any point to keeping the covenant that I made with God when I was baptized. Uh, last October, and yes, this was recent, last October, it was um, a week before I was getting ready to go to a wedding up in Ontario. And I, it was Saturday, and I had just gotten done uh, spending the entire day with my friends, even though my family had to go clean church, and I made all sorts of excuses, and they covered for me, as they always did. Um, and I was feeling the anxiety and tension of that because I knew I was, I knew they knew something was not quite right, outright. And coming home in the car, as I did almost every time I left my friends, I kept thinking, you have to do something. You have to stop this. It was the pleading of the Holy Spirit. You have to make the decision to turn your back on this because if you keep this up, you'll get to a point where there is no turning back. And that was not an, a new thing for me. Like I said, it happened all the time whenever I was done hanging out with my friends because there was literally not one time, well, maybe one or two, but there were very few times when I was with my friends that I did not compromise myself in some way or another. And like I said every time, I just can't do it. I don't have the strength. I said, I'll do it, I'll do it when I have a moment. And the moment never came, of course. I have two verses on here. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And the second is, and if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. For it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God and be with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell. 
Because we were going to Ontario, I wanted to make sure that I had myself together. And um, I noticed that I had one clump of hair that was longer than all the rest. So I decided at 10.30 at night that I was going to cut that piece of hair shorter so that it matched the rest of my head. I took out a pair of uh, scissors, uh, and because I'm, I'm an artistic kind of person and I, and I make a lot of things, I had these, these um, shear type scissors that were about a foot, that are, they're about a foot long, and uh, st completely stainless steel and, well, not stainless because they're rusty and loose and all this stuff. I mean, they look like something out of a horror movie. Why I picked those up? I know why, but I sure didn't know why afterwards. I went snipped once, I went to snip again and stabbed myself in my left eye with the scissors. It wasn't just a poke either. I mean, I stabbed myself good. And as I dropped the scissors, and I, I didn't have my glasses at the time, and as I put my hand to my eye, the first thing that came to my, to my mind was this verse. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. God crippled me for a week. I thought it was just a glancing blow, because after all, I was not aiming for this, I was aiming for up here. But I gave myself such a direct stab that the ophthalmologist that I had to go to on Tuesday because my eye was not healing said that if I had gone even a millimeter more with the scissors, I would have gouged out my eye and I'd be blind in my left eye right now. And I knew why it happened. I knew exactly why it happened. As soon as, as, soon as it happened, I knew. And I woke up in the middle of the night with more pain than I've ever experienced in my entire life because it wasn't just a physical pain, it was an emotional pain too. It was a spiritual pain because God was telling me, he said, I'm giving you this one last chance. Please, take it. And so the next day, I, I, literally, I literally spent the entire week just basically in bed with a cold compress pressed onto my eye because I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't open my eyes, I couldn't see but by Sunday evening, when my family was at, at potluck dinner, I could finally crack open my eyes a little bit, and I, I sat down on Facebook, and I wrote an email apologizing to my friends for how much I let them down and trying to explain to them exactly who I am and why I needed some time away for a while to try to straighten out and try to figure out who I am. Because, you see, I didn't just fail God. I failed them, too, in everything that God asked me to do. The only, and I told them, I said, you know, the only reason why I'm friends with you, or I should be, the only reason why I should be friends with you is so that I can share God's love with you and show you what he can do in a person's life. How do you think they reacted to that? They responded by saying they felt judged. Uh, they felt preached to. Uh, they, they said, yes, we do need some time apart. Um, and it did not go over well. And so there, were, there was a course of about two months where we didn't talk, and then I finally tried to you know, go back and explain things. And we are friends. We are friends today. And sometimes I'm afraid that I'm still a little bit too close to them, even after all of this. More important than sending out that email, I had a time when I had to repent and come clean and be honest with my family about everything that had been going on and to apologize to them for how much I hurt them and I hurt my family. Because not only did I compromise my own integrity, I compromised the integrity of my household. And I created an inroad for the devil to come in and wreak havoc on our family. We don't think about the spiritual side of things. And I'm so, I'm so thankful that God almost blinded me. Because at least 
even if I can't, even if I'll never be able to salvage my testimony with my friends and convince them that God can change lives, at least at the end of the day, I will still be able to see Jesus when I die. But my greatest fear is that my friends will go to hell someday. And it will be my fault because I lived a lie to them and I told them that Jesus does not change lives. And i gotta, I got to speed up. I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. <clears throat> How do we counter these tools? How do we counter these attacks of the devil? Because they are attacks and they are real. The first is that we have to recognize that the battle that we are in, and it is a battle, the world that we are living in is a spiritual world, not just a physical one. You know, we get the idea that just because we go to school and we have a routine and that we see and experience things with our bodies, that there's nothing else. But there is war raging on about us. There are angels and demons that are fighting over our souls. In, in Kings, Elisha and his servant were surrounded by the, by the Assyrians. And it was just them and the Assyrians, and, and his servant was freaking out. And he prayed so that, that the servant's eyes might be open, and he saw chariots of fire are all on the hills surrounding the village. Those are the same chariots and the same angelic warriors that we have protecting us if we will just allow God to help us fight our battles. And Ephesians says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the, of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. If we think that all we have going for us is an assignment due next week, we are right where the devil wants us. We cannot, live, we cannot afford to live our lives the way other people do, because if we do, we're walking right into a trap. We have to communicate both with God and with other Christians. The Bible says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Because if we do that, God will be our shield. He will be our strength. He will give us what we need to be able to make it through. And not only make it through, but be the kinds of Christians we're called to be. We're supposed to confess our faults to one another. We're supposed to be honest and transparent with each other. I've tried to do that with you, with you guys here today. And, and I'll be honest, this almost didn't happen. Because I've been so ashamed of, every, of my past, of everything. And we're supposed to bear each other's burdens so that we can fulfill the law of Christ. We have to take stock of our situation and our spiritual progress. We need to sit down and be honest with each other. Not with each other, excuse me. We need to sit down and be honest with ourselves. Even if it's for ten minutes and you're completely alone in the dark with no music, no friends, nothing but you and God, and you're praying to him and evaluating exactly where you are in your life. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. This is not something that we can just do on our own. This can only come by the Spirit's leading. So we need to ask for it. But I urge you, if nothing else, even if, even if you have to pray that God cripples you for a week like he did me, examine yourselves. And then once you've examined yourself, act accordingly. If there's something that needs to be repented for, repent for it. Allow yourself to feel the pain and the sorrow of that so that it can motivate you to turn back to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. It's as simple as that. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. 
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And this verse, this verse has been my consolation since last October. For if our heart condemneth, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. We have to not only repent, we have to be able to move on. Because if Satan can't keep us in our sin, he's going to keep beating us over the head with it so that we will never have the strength or the courage to do anything God asks us to. The other thing is to be able to walk away from a bad influence. And this is something that, I'll be honest, I'm still struggling with. Because I, I still have it in my mind that maybe I, can, maybe I can fix things with my friends. But the Bible says that we have to cleave to that which is good, and blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. If you think that you are going to witness to your friends and bring them to God, or you're going to witness to your girlfriend and bring her to God, and you're not a Christian yourself, or you're a Christian or whatever the situation is, and you are the one that's being influenced, recognize that and be willing to walk away because you will never be able to influence them on your own and in the situation that you're going because you get into a pattern. You get into a habit, and you maintain that. And whatever you leave behind, whatever God asks you to leave behind, he has always said that he will provide more of, of the better in its place. We need to spend time in the Word, study to show ourselves approved unto God, as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, as right dividers of the Word of truth. And we need to be vigilant. This is what I said. We can't, we can't just relax like the rest of the world. We can't go out and just have a good time and lose track of ourselves and just get lost in the fun and pleasure of whatever we're doing. That's, that's one of the reasons why I went as far as I did, because I wanted to escape the pain and loneliness that I was feeling of living in Florida. Our adversary seeks about to consume us, not just cripple us, utterly and completely destroy us. We, as, as spiritual warriors, we have to constantly be on guard. I honestly feel like camp is the one time when I can, actually camp is like the only time where I feel like I can actually let down my barriers and feel completely at rest and at peace because I don't have to watch out for the devil coming to try to sneak something in and, you know, the way, the way he, he did every time I was with my friends, which is not to say that there haven't been times I've said and done stupid stuff at camp. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be therefore not partakers with them. The last one is you have to learn how to prioritize your affections. You have to learn what it means to truly hate the world and everything that's in it except for the people. And I can honestly tell you, after all that I've been through, I absolutely hate the world. There is, there is nothing. I, I've seen what it does to people. I've seen how it changes people. And it disgusts me. But the problem is I still love those people who call themselves my friends. We have to decide that God is worth it and that he's enough for us. There are people that were thrown into jail. There are people who were killed for their faith. And I'm concerned about being lonely. The reason why all this started is because God wasn't enough for me. The being that created this world maintains it and considers me whose life is but a little speck of nothing. That God who came to die, who, who, who actually came into this creation to die so that I could one day live with him, he wasn't enough for me. I needed more than that, to my shame. 
We have to understand that we're living our faith not only for our own salvation, but also for the salvation of those around us. If we were only living our faith for our own salvation, God could pluck us out of this world as soon as our head came up from the baptismal because we'd be saved. Everything that God prescribed for us for salvation would be done. But we are here because our salvation serves to draw other men to Christ as well. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. God is the place, God is the thing that will help us rise above the muck and the filth of this world. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And I have a few minutes for questions. Anyone, please. I... This, this is one of those rare times when we can be completely honest with each other. So I invite you to, to, to take it. If you have any questions, please ask. Yeah. Did your sister go through any of the things with, like, the change of friends and whatnot? Um, my sister's a very special person. Um, she's very gifted in that um, a lot of the time God is enough for her. And Satan didn't attack her with friends so much as with depression. I was her friend. I am her friend. I love my sister so much. She's a, we are each other's supports in Florida. We keep each other going. And so she didn't face the exact same struggles I did, and I'm so thankful for her, but she faced her own struggles. I mean, you can add to it if you, if you want to, but she doesn't know. She's probably crying too. But she had her own struggles. My other sister, Becky, if you ever see her, ask her about the struggles she faced. She faced similar situations that I did. God was gracious enough to save her, too. So yeah, none of us were unaffected. But it was a growing experience for all of us. I can honestly tell you that I feel, I feel, I feel so much stronger in the Lord because of everything that happened. And even, even though if I could, I would take back everything that I did because I wish that I had never sinned. But I'm thankful for the change of heart that God was able to bring about in me and the reliance on him and the spiritual perspective that he was able to cultivate in me as a result of it. Living in Florida has not been easy, but it has been blessed because God has been helping us to draw closer to him, and that's, that's got to be enough. God is enough for me and worth it. Any other questions? If not, thank you very much for, for your time. And, and be honest with each other. <laughs>